A look at immigration policy as people from Ukraine seek asylum. Why them? Why not us? And there's no clear answer because of the policies, because it's discretionary. I'm Jade Hindman with Maureen Kavanaugh. This is KPBS Midday Edition. As gas prices soar, what's the political impact? This has been the most politically salient way that inflation has been experienced by California at at the pump, right? Because gas is this amazing thing. Whether you are buying it or not, you see the price of it everywhere you go. And the mental impact of violent images from Ukraine on those who suffer from combat trauma. Plus, hear rare music from the John Coltrane Memorial Black Music Archive. That's ahead on Midday Edition. Hi, I'm Beth Accomando, KPBS arts reporter and host of the Cinema Junkie podcast. I'm also a geeky gourmet who likes to bake food themed to the movies I watch, like chocolate blood to savor with Dracula, or an extra chewy Wookiee cookie to enjoy with Star Wars. I'm geeky about the things I love, and that makes me a public radio geek as well. I love being able to connect with audiences just like you through TV, radio, the web, and podcasts like the one you're listening to right now. So, are you a KPBS geek? If so, then I'm asking you to get in touch with your inner nerd and become a member of KPBS today. Just go to kpbs.org and click the blue Give Now button and make a donation. That's right. Let's geek out together about the things we love. Russia's invasion of Ukraine has created a humanitarian crisis as more than two million Ukrainians have fled the fighting. In recent weeks, local border crossings have seen an increase in Ukrainian asylum seekers, but a Trump-era border policy continues to hinder their journey to the United States. Here is Ukrainian refugee Natalia Polakova on her repeated struggles to cross the border from Mexico into the United States. Again and again and again, like 40 times a day per car and per, uh, on foot and uh, different uh, borders here, but nothing. Joining me is KPBS border reporter Gustavo Solis with more on the situation at the border. Gustavo, welcome back. Hello, Jade. Thanks for having me. How are refugees from Ukraine ending up at the western U.S.-Mexico border? Well, it comes down to uh, visa issues. Right, you need a visa to board a plane, so people might think it makes more sense to fly from Europe to, let's say, New York or Miami, but it's very difficult right now for Ukrainians to get American visas. It's much easier for them to fly to Mexico. And generally speaking, they're getting out of Ukraine by a bus or a train, make their way to Western European countries like Germany, and then fly either directly to Mexico or sometimes, like Natalia did, through South American countries like Colombia. Do we have any idea on the numbers of Ukrainians local border crossings are seeing today? We don't have daily data right now, but Customs and Border Protection does track encounters at the border on a monthly basis. And the data does show that the numbers have been going up dramatically here in San Diego over the last few years. So, for example, there were fewer than 100 encounters in fiscal year 2020, and that jumped up to more than 600 in fiscal year 2021. 
Already, just in the first four months of the current fiscal year, there's been more than 900 encounters so far. Why are Ukrainian asylum seekers like Natalia having difficulties crossing into the U.S.? Yeah, well, not just Ukrainian asylum seekers, but all asylum seekers right now. And they're coming up against uh, Title 42, which is a Trump-era policy that severely limited people's ability to apply for asylum. And can you explain what Title 42 is and, and why it was implemented? Title 42 is a pandemic-era health order that the CDC issued in March 2020. We know now through, through later reporting that top doctors at the CDC actually opposed Title 42, but the Trump administration went over their head and pressured the director of the agency to issue the health order. And basically, it allows Border Patrol agents to turn away asylum seekers at the border because of the pandemic. Now, the policy also gives them the discretion to grant exceptions based on humanitarian reasons. So asylum seekers at the border really have no clear indication of who or when they might get one of those exemptions. And what you get is that they try to cross over and over and over again, like Natalia did. Has the Biden administration given any indication that it plans to rescind it? Not officially. I mean, the Biden administration has faced calls from his own Democratic Party to end Title 42 for, for the last few months now. And like I said, nothing official has come out, but there has been reporting from last week suggesting that the administration might finally end Title 42 next month. And you reported that one Ukrainian family was allowed to cross, making them the first to cross since the war began. Why were they allowed to cross when so many others can't? Well, it kind of goes to the discretion thing, right? There's no clear policy or guidelines of who gets it and why. With this specific family, they were just lucky enough to have legal representation. An immigration lawyer happened to see them at the border after they got turned away. She, the lawyer saw a mother crying with three young children. A group of other lawyers and advocates blasted Customs and Border Protection on social media. They were able to call their contacts to lobby the agency to let the family in. And, and that's great for that family. It worked for them. But unfortunately, it's very rare for asylum seekers stranded at the southern border to get that type of legal representation. Your reporting has also talked about how other groups of asylum seekers, particularly Haitians, are experiencing unequal treatment compared to those from Ukraine. Tell us about that. Definitely. And it's not just Haitians, right? It's Central Americans, even Mexican asylum seekers that have been getting turned away via Title 42 for two years now. Actually, one of the lawyers who helped that Ukrainian family get into the U.S., she was in town to help Haitian families. And right after she helped that Ukrainian family, she turned around and went to a migrant shelter in Tijuana that caters to, to Haitian families. And when she got there, she got a lot of questions like, hey, why, why them? Why not us? And there's no clear answer because of the policies, because it's discretionary. It's a pretty clear that people on the ground are seeing this discretion is not being applied equally. And it's difficult for people from Central America, Mexico, Haiti to see Europeans having easier access to asylum that they've been asking for for well over a year now. Have border officials given any information on what discretion they use to determine who can successfully cross the border and who can't? They have not, at least not that I'm aware of. I, I've reached out to them and haven't heard back. Anecdotally, they, they seem to be, at least in the Ukrainian cases in the last week or so, they seem to prioritize families over individuals traveling by themselves. And, and talk a bit more about that, uh, with them giving preference to families. Two years ago, last year, they were separating families at the border. Yeah, that's right. I, I mean, that's kind of border policy last 
few years in a nutshell, right? There's no real rhyme and reason or, or transparency why one thing happens over the other. I mean, just a couple months ago, we were talking about the migrant camp at El Chaparral, which was mainly made up of Central Americans. They were camping out just south of the San Ysidro port of entry. They wanted to be as close as possible so that when Title 42 went away, they would be the first ones to cross. The city of Tijuana, at the pressure from the U.S. government, shut down the camp, and all those migrants are now scattered in shelters or, or homeless or renting apartments in Tijuana. Do you have any update on the status of Natalia Polikova? Uh, has she been able to cross into the United States yet? Well, I do have an update, and it's actually a positive one. Uh, just this morning, about an hour ago, her aunt told me that she was finally allowed to cross, and she's in California now. Uh, this was after spending a week in Tijuana. Uh, so right now she's driving up to L.A. to be you know, reunited with her aunt. And I think uh, just when I talked to her last week, the only thing she wanted to do was take a shower and sleep. I've been speaking with KPBS voter reporter Gustavo Solis. Gustavo, thank you so much. Thank you, Jade. The price of gas continued climbing in California over the weekend, although not as much as the nearly 50 cent a gallon jump the average price has taken since the beginning of March. The ban on Russian oil, coupled with pandemic production issues, are making the weekly commute a drain on drivers' budgets. And economists say high gas prices will only increase inflation, potentially pushing the high price of food, clothes, and rent even higher. The public's concern and growing anger over this economic squeeze has prompted attention from politicians. Last week, Governor Gavin Newsom's administration suggested a tax rebate proposal might be offered to help consumers. Other lawmakers say the state should issue a new round of stimulus checks or lift the gas tax for a limited time. What kind of relief would make the most sense for the public and the politicians. Joining me is Thad Kauser, political scientist at UC San Diego. And Thad, welcome. Thanks for having me, Maureen. Give me your sense of how increased gas prices and high inflation are affecting California. Well, this has been the most politically salient way that inflation has been experienced by California at, at the pump, right? Because you know, gas is this amazing thing, whether you are buying it or not, you see the price of it everywhere you go. Uh, it's broadcast on these giant billboards. And so it's it's the thing that crystallizes uh, everyone's concerns about inflation in the economy. And you know, if you're driving an electric car, you still see this. If you're not driving an electric car, you're really feeling it every time you fill up you fill up your gas tank. And so it, and it bears a, a larger burden on people who have lower incomes and it squeezes their income more. So it's, it's a big issue right now in California. One of our listeners, Lynn Lauman, says that he feels that he's going to be hurt by this, even though he does have an EV. You know, it's not going to affect me at all. Um, the, the increase in gas prices for as far as transportation goes, but I know other commodities will go up in price uh, because of transportation. And I see that that is one of the reasons we have to get off of fossil fuels. How is all this affecting the political climate in California, Thad? Well, it's really crystallized demand for some kind of tax relief. And I think we're going to see that, right? We looks like we'll have about a $21 billion 
uh, surplus in California government, j- just like we had last year, a really large surplus. And, and that's actually going to kick in a, a kind of old and obscure and almost forgotten part of our state uh, constitution called the GAN limit, which says when, when tax revenues rise by so much, you got to give back, uh, politicians have to give back at least $2.6 billion to taxpayers. I, the, the the political bet is that to uh, really respond to this need with inflation and to curry favor with voters in an election year, Gavin Newsom is going to propose a really large tax rebate of some kind. In fact, that was his only policy proposal in the state of the state address that he gave last week. Well, because California lawmakers actually have this huge $21 billion budget surplus, they now have options to help consumers out. So let's go through some of the ideas being floated in Sacramento. There's lifting the gas tax that's supported by a number of Republican lawmakers and at least one of our listeners. Really, an immediate solution is is needed. Um, a pause on the gas tax, at least, would ensure that Californians are able to you know, continue working, but more importantly, feeding their families and living where we live. That is listener Charlene Pulsanetti. And so, Thad, what about lifting the gas tax? How much of a difference would that make? Yeah, so this is something that Republican lawmakers in Sacramento are proposing. California has a 51 cent a gallon gas tax. That's the second biggest in the nation. So if you lifted it, right, it would reduce the cost of gas uh, and that would bring some immediate and, and very focused relief to the people who are feeling the greatest pinch at the pump. That's the good side. On the other hand, well, where does that money go, right? It goes to transportation and transit projects, all things that make those of us who are driving on the roads better off. And so if you get rid of the gas tax, but don't replace that money, that means in the long-term future, okay, we may be paying less of the pump, but we'll be sitting longer in traffic. And also, uh, if all of the gas tax, is that savings is passed along to consumers, gas would still be over $5 for most of us because it's only 51 cents a gallon. And second, all of that tax savings may not be passed along to consumers. Some of it may be, may be kept um, by, by the, the fossil fuel industry, as, as we've seen with, with other uh, cuts in the gas tax. So there are pros and cons of that approach. Okay, then the governor is suggesting some sort of tax rebate instead. Do we have any idea how that would work? So Governor Newsom wasn't particularly clear about exactly what he had in mind last week with the state of the state. But one thing governors are doing in some other states is essentially mailing a check to everyone who's got a car registered in California. And maybe you mail two checks if they have two cars, right? So the idea here is you're not taking away the gas tax. So you're not hurting the income stream for all those transportation and transit projects, uh, but you're giving real clear, immediate relief to people who are squeezed right now. And that's the good side. The bad side is, is this equity issue, right? It doesn't go to people who, who don't drive cars, but who are still also feeling the cost increase of transportation costs and everything that they buy. And more of the money would go to people who can afford more cars if you do it per car. And that could create a, a big equity concern. And I know it, a lot of this is unclear, but is it your sense people would have to wait until next year to get the get tax rebate? No, I think what we're seeing across the country and what we saw from Gavin Newsom in the run up to his recall, where he gave sent these stimulus checks to anyone making 75000 or under in California, total of $12 billion, biggest stimulus, uh, biggest tax rebate in American state history. I think you'll see something like that again. And, and especially because this is an election year. You don't want to wait until next March or April to give people relief. And you don't want to wait until they know you're doing something for them. You want to send them a check 
with your name on it right now if you're a California political leader. Well, the idea of sending a check, he, he could just go to sending out another round of stimulus checks. Mm-hmm. Would that be faster and more equitable? Well, it, it wouldn't be uh, it wouldn't be any faster uh, necessarily, but it would re- it would re- address those equity concerns that I raised and that legislative leaders are particularly uh, interested in. So there was uh, there's a tweet last week sent out um, by by the leaders Tony Atkins and Anthony Rendon of the state legislature. These Democratic leaders that kind of said, "Yes, Gavin Newsom, we like what we're doing, but everyone is feeling the pump pinch of the pump, whether they're buying whether they're buying gas or buying food or paying rent. Everyone is seeing their prices go up." Let's give something to everyone. So we could see another round of stimulus that could be framed as a response to gas increases, but it would go to people who have cars and who don't have cars, but are still paying uh, indirectly this this increase. And it could be targeted at people um, at certain income levels, or it could be given to everyone because frankly, the state's got enough money. It could afford probably to make just about everyone happy. And more stimulus, though, could keep the spiral of inflation rising. Isn't that right? Well, anytime you have money going into the economy, it's part of what leads to inflation, right? The, the, the Fed's policies over the last several years that kept our economy going through the pandemic, right? That's part of what caused the inflation problem, right? We could be uh, having a depression instead of an inflation problem if the Fed had not acted, if we had not had federal and state stimulus packages. Uh, inflation may not be the, is not the only terrible thing that can happen in an economy. And so there's always that trade-off of, of stimulus versus uh, economic drag. I think if you're a politician, you certainly want to give people something to pay the increasing bills that 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 every Californian now has, uh, because we know that the, that the bigger inflationary pressures are coming at the national level and through international pressures such as you know as supply chain issues and wars. The last round of stimulus checks went to people who made less than seventy five thousand dollars. That means a chunk of the middle class was left out. Do you mm-hmm. think that would happen again if we had another round? You know, I think. California political leaders are increasingly recognizing that that folks in that middle and and, and in many states, lower upper class, people making between 50 and one hundred and fifty thousand dollars in many states, those are those are really affluent people in California. It's a fight to survive, given what our rents are like and what our housing costs are like. That's the group of Californians that are most worried about its future and most concerned about uh, present day economic pinches. And so I think you may see political leaders, if they can afford it, try to cast uh, a wider net with stimulus checks, especially if they're framed as a response to the inflation that everyone's paying uh, and and the the cost of the gas prices that, that at least directly or indirectly all of us are feeling right now. Now, Thad, you've written that there's nothing politicians like to do more than send out checks to the voting public, especially in an election year. Do you think that's going to prompt the governor and lawmakers to get on this quickly? I think so. I mean, where we see political inaction is when we have these really difficult choices. So think back 10 years ago when we had this worldwide recession, the state had a huge budget deficit and had to choose between who to raise taxes on and what services to cut. Now they have a big surplus. The question is, who do we give money back to uh, and what services do we increase? That's a really good political choice. I think that'll lead to you know, potential bipartisan agreement on, on on a fairly quick response. And I think Californians can expect and demand action over the next two to three months as the budget solidifies. 
What could the fallout be to this gas price inflation spiral in California? In other words, do you think more people will leave the state? Could this possibly revive the GOP? What effects do you see it having? Well, I think when you have any kind of economic bad news, you see that hurting the incumbent party, right? And so the real question is, where is that incumbent party vulnerable? In the governor's race, probably not. We don't see any major candidate. Um, Kevin Faulkner did not emerge as a candidate in the governor's race to try to unseat Gavin Newsom in 2022. Republicans took their best shot in the recall. I don't think he's very vulnerable. But there could be some Democrats in politically competitive districts in the state legislature who may pay a price for this. Clearly, Congress, where you're again going to have swing districts in Cal- all across California, including in San Diego, that is where the uh, the response and and the, the the voter anger over inflation and and voter uh, discouragement over the direction of the nation and the state that's where they could play out in the 2022 election. I've been speaking with Thad Kauser, political science professor at UC San Diego. Thad, as always, thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Hello, podcast listener. Full disclosure, I'm going to make some assumptions about you. This probably isn't the only podcast you enjoy. Blink if I'm right. (laughs) It's probably not the only thing you watch or listen to on KPBS either. If I'm right about that, then I'm guessing you make it a point to check in on a regular basis to see what's new, take in the latest and greatest, and then you go back to your daily life until we happily come together again. We're sort of like a virtual buffet. When you're hungry for information and entertainment, you go to KPBS and want to eat, uh, consume all you can, right? Well, you should know that when you become a member of KPBS, you're keeping the entire TV, radio, and online trays full of fresh ideas, like the tasty podcast you're enjoying right now. Help feed your appetite for KPBS. Become a member today. Just go to kpbs.org, click the blue Give Now button, and make a donation. Thank you. This is KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Maureen Kavanaugh with Jade Heineman. The war in Ukraine is producing a steady stream of violent images. These images can have a profound effect on those who suffered trauma in combat. KPBS military reporter Steve Walsh looks at one vet plagued by survivor's guilt. And a warning to our listeners, the story references suicide. In the months prior to the fall of Kabul in August 2021, Nick Pelosi was reaching out to help other veterans. Last July, he described for me a helicopter crash he narrowly survived 15 years ago and its lasting impact. The crash killed 10 soldiers in Afghanistan, including Justin O'Donohoe of San Diego. The damage that comes from this stuff is unbelievable. None of these families are ever going to be the same. Pelosi questioned why the war had dragged on so long. Appearing on a virtual panel about the war sponsored by KPBS in September, he sounded weary when I asked him how he was doing. Um, It's been pretty tough uh, to watch what's going on over there. Having so many friends that died and, you know, I was wounded and tons of friends were wounded. Um, You kind of question what it was all about. In February, months after most of us turned away from the daily images coming out of Afghanistan, Pelosi killed himself. After the war ended, his brother Anthony says Pelosi fixated on the idea that his friend's sacrifice was meaningless. He just immersed himself into news articles, 
YouTube, news stations on TV. It was pretty rough. The easiest way I could describe it was he was a drug addict. The news was his drug. Anthony says Nick was getting counseling at the local VA and working with veterans groups near his home in upstate New York. Occasionally, he would open up to his brother, but he didn't see this coming. Sonia Norman is with the San Diego VA and the VA National Center for PTSD. Even if it's just I didn't deserve to survive, who am I when these other people had families, were doing these other things? She never met Pelosi, but she says survivor's guilt is strongly linked to PTSD. It can come up years later as a person's view of what happened changes. And the guilt gets in the way of treatment. With this, I don't deserve to feel better and I don't deserve good things and 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 kind of that self-destructive piece. And you can see how it can be this be involved in this downward slide towards suicide. Dwayne France is a combat vet who is also a therapist who counsels veterans. Some of his patients were distressed last summer. But images coming out of Ukraine can also trigger past trauma. You can't tell when that distress may lead down the path to suicide. Dozens of things have to go wrong in someone's life for them to get to the place where they're in a suicidal crisis, but maybe only one thing needs to go right. So there are a number of protective factors that may keep service members and veterans from getting into a suicidal crisis. Keeping connected, seeking counseling. Overall, the number of veteran suicides are slowly declining. Still, veterans make up about 7% of the U.S. adult population, but account for 20% of all suicides. It wasn't a factor in Pelosi's death, but a majority of veteran suicides involve firearms. So asking a friend to hold a firearm or at least keeping their guns under lock. The VA and the other organizations will provide free trigger locks. It can be just enough time for a veteran to reconsider. You want to be able to, to be with them, to be there with them when they need you the most. Ross Burkoff is a retired captain. He served two tours in Afghanistan with the 10th Mountain Division. Pelosi is the fourth suicide among those he served with. Burkoff always feels like he needs to do more to keep in contact. The Facebook, I'm here for you, buddy, kind of message, that's fine. I'm sure it's well-intended, but I don't know the answer here. How do we stop this? He answers his own question. You just need to keep reaching out. Steve Walsh, KPBS News. If you are experiencing thoughts of suicide, help is available 24 hours a day. Call the National Veterans Crisis Line at 1-800-273-8255. A new initiative at the San Diego Botanic Garden aims to study the medicinal aspects of plants, and it's doing so through the lens of indigenous traditions. The grant-funded program will create a living laboratory to give researchers insights into the benefits and effects of plant life often overlooked by Western research. Joining me now with more is Lauren J. Mapp, a reporter at the San Diego Union-Tribune who covers the region's indigenous communities. Lauren, welcome to the program. Thank you so much for having me, Jade. So can you start off by telling us how this new project came about and what researchers hope to learn from it? So there's been a collaboration between the Botanic Garden and the Kumeyaay um, group at Hamul Indian Village in East County for about 20 years now. And so about 20 years back, they started going through and naming all of the native plants um, by their Kumeyaay name to bring more visibility to the tribe and that tradition of using these plants as food and medicine. 
So this newest effort or collaboration is thanks to a grant from the Conrad Priebus Foundation, uh, about a $384,000 grant. And so they're going to kind of build on that history of what they've been doing uh, by researching these plants to see how they can be used uh, for new pharmaceuticals to treat different ailments. So how does the approach of this new initiative differ from more widely used methods to study medicinal plants? I do know from a native medicinal plant usage perspective that a lot of these plants we have traditions of using over millennia. I'm Mohawk, Oregon Yungahaga from upstate New York. And, you know, we have lots of medicines that we have used um, generation after generation that have been passed down through oral traditions. And we know that they work for treating different ailments like using echinacea tea to treat a cough or a sore throat or uh, using strawberries to help regulate your body temperature during the summer. But a lot of times these traditional medicines are seen as kind of like folklore or folk medicine and haven't really been studied by scientists. So they don't have scientific proof of how these affect the body and how these can be used and harnessed to treat different ailments. And so this new effort is hoping to bring some some insight and light to how these traditional, traditional medicines work and how they can be used further. We're talking about this as a new program, but They're just now studying what indigenous people have known for centuries. How does this program use this knowledge, do you think, to further Western medicine? I think the collaboration is really great. You know, the Kumeyaay have been in this region of what we know as San Diego County today for at least 10,000 years. Uh, We have archaeological evidence that shows that. And so they have a huge, long history of using the native plant life to help treat their ailments. And I think Having the actual scientific research behind that brings more visibility to the tribe. It potentially can help find cures for for ailments that we have that we don't have cures for or certain cures don't work for everyone. I know I personally have issues with with a lot of pharmaceuticals that I just can't have like penicillin, amoxicillin. And so I'm not able to take a lot of Western medicines because of that. And so this could potentially fill that gap for people that do have allergic reactions to those kinds of drugs. Geographically speaking, it seems advantageous that this program would be developed here in San Diego, given uh, the region's impressive biodiversity. Um, What can you tell us about that? Yeah, so San Diego is the most biodiverse county in the contiguous United States. So we have the greatest number of uh, individual plant species and animal species of any other county. And it's also kind of interesting because San Diego also has the greatest number of individual tribes of any county in the United States. So I think those two things are kind of interesting that they both, you know, work together. And, you know, with that biodiversity, you have different climate regions within San Diego County. You know, it could be 70 degrees by the beach when it's 100 plus degrees over in the desert. And each of those bioregions within the county has its own different type of plant life. And those plants, you might have plants that grow in each of those areas, but they grow differently because of the conditions that they're in. And so that's something that this research is going to be looking into is if you manipulate the um, drought conditions or the temperature conditions for a certain plant, does it develop other chemicals that can be used and harnessed that you wouldn't get in other conditions. You touched on this a a bit earlier, but is there a hope from local tribal leaders that this will lead to a wider understanding about the history of the Kumeyaay people? Yes, absolutely. In speaking with Lisa Kumper from the Homo Indian 
village. Uh, she was mentioning that aside from the scientific benefit of studying these medicines more thoroughly, that she's hoping that it'll bring a greater understanding to just the community at, at large about the Kumeyaay tribe. There's always this kind of idea when you look at history books that Indigenous tribes were the people of yesteryear, that they used to be from this area or, you know, they're kind of here still, but there's rarely kind of affirmative statements about people still being here and still living these traditions uh, in the modern world. And so they're hoping to bring more visibility to the tribes and the history that they continue to contribute to. I've been speaking with San Diego Union Tribune reporter Lauren J. Mapp. Lauren, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Public radio programs attract educated consumers and business decision makers. You can reach this highly desirable audience with your company's marketing message on KPBS. Isn't it time to make our listeners your customers? Find out how by calling 619-594-5715 today. You're listening to KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Jade Hindman with Maureen Cavanaugh. A recent article in the San Diego Union-Tribune describes the collapse of a deal between SDSU and a local music collector who'd been planning to donate his rare music archive to the university. Brom Dykstra has spent the last 65 years amassing an expansive collection of black music, which, alongside many other rarities, includes every album ever released by jazz great John Coltrane. It's been called one of the major music collections in America, and among the archive's nearly 50,000 records are countless jazz, blues, R&B, Latin, reggae, and other world music albums, all in pristine condition, and some so rare that they are nearly impossible to find in the present day. After learning about this collection in our own backyard, we wanted to hear the music and share some of it with you, so we reached out to Brom Dykstra. I started by asking about the importance of this collection and the scope of the music in it. It's called the John Coltrane Memorial Collection because essentially as a Dutch boy, I became absolutely fascinated with the sound of John Coltrane, which I first heard with Miles Davis. I began to study his music and essentially he became the reason why I came to the United States some uh, 60 years ago. Talk to me a bit more about what you feel when you listen to John Coltrane. What I feel is absolute creativity, a kind of a sense of wanting to find out more about everything, about life, about creativity, about the world in general, a pushing style of creativity that might push the world into a different direction.
Coltrane was one of the most creative people in not just jazz, but in the entire world of music and culture. And I have always seen him as one of my greatest inspirations. There isn't just jazz in this archive. This is an extensive collection of gospel, blues, R&B, Caribbean, African, cumbia. I mean, how interconnected are these different forms of music, in your opinion? Well, the interconnection is through rhythm, through the various polyrhythms which come out of Africa and then spread through a diaspora of various forms of rhythm. Uh, different cultures pick up certain kinds of rhythm, emphasize certain kinds of rhythm, but they all weave back into a sound that is a really a form of communication that is extremely important. The interesting thing is that in uh, the music of the Dogon from Mali, there's a, a myth that the drum taught humanity how to speak. That notion that the drum taught us how to speak is, is really something that weaves through all the forms of music that are connected with the drum because the drum is essentially the articulation of what we really feel, our emotions, and it drives our emotions. And it is just fascinating to me to see how different cultures bring out these elements. And we also know that Africa's music also heavily influences other genres of music. Can you talk about that? Well, for example, the whole focus of reggae music, especially that in the 70s and 80s, was the focus on Ethiopia and on the influence of Ethiopia, the idea of returning to Africa. So a lot of uh, reggae uses African rhythms to indicate that. same time, for example, there is so much influence of African music on Latin American music in general. You can hear it in barcata, you can hear it in the various forms of cumbia, and all of these are also part of the collection, of course. Well, we've been talking about this music in your collection, so we might as well hear some specific selections from it. The first song that we're going to hear is a track by jazz great Art Blakey and his band, The Jazz Messengers. What can you tell us about the song Avila and Tequila? 
Well, Avila and Tequila is essentially Blakey's attempt at blending New World jazz and rhythms with African rhythms as well. What he would do some point during his concerts is put together a drum track. His musicians, people like a wonderful tenor saxophone player, Hank Mobley, the great pianist, Horace Silver, and Kenny Dorham, a wonderful trumpeter, and they would all take rhythm instruments and start playing them. And Blakey, who was probably the most aggressive drummer you could possibly imagine would play over all of that. That was Avila and Tequila by Art Blakey and the Jazz Messengers. Our next track takes us to West Africa. Brom, tell us about this next song, Bansu, by singer and musician Joe Mensa. Joe Mensah was a Nigerian and was creating music around the same time that Anikolapa Kuti started to play his music, and they were both heavily influenced by American jazz. The interesting thing is that where Kelakuti played tenor sax mostly. Joe Menza actually played an instrument that has disappeared into history, and that is the Moog synthesizer. Bonsu by Joe Mensa. Moving right along, we have a track from noted Cuban percussionist and band leader Mongo Santa Maria. Brahm, what can you tell us about this recording of El Toro? Well, El Toro is absolutely one of the most magnificent pieces of music that I know of. It has great solos by Mongo Santa Maria, but also by all his musicians. And what is fascinating here is that some of his musicians were U.S. American and some of his musicians were South American or Cuban. And they all blended together in the most amazing fashion. And I'm afraid that you're not going to hear much of it, but this is absolutely one of the most fabulous pieces of music you could imagine. And you're listening to El Toro by Mongo Santa Maria. Next, we have a song by Haitian composer and saxophonist Raul Guillaume. Uh, what can listeners expect from the track Balance Yaya? It's actually an early Haitian piece of music that precedes what became later compa music. Me 
It is a form that is called the Congo. I don't know why they called it the Congo, but it includes clearly a lot of elements that come from Africa. And so the link between Africa and Haiti, which is quite obvious, of course, is very striking in that piece. And the song you're hearing is Balance Yaya by Haitian musician Raul Guillaume. Next is a politically charged track by the noted Nigerian activist and band leader we mentioned earlier, Fela Kuti. Bram, what's the story behind this track, Zombie? Essentially, it's one of Fela's many attacks on the political situation in Nigeria. way in which the Nigerian government was trying to force people into doing the political will of the government. And zombie is an indication of what he, he thought the Nigerian government wanted to make the people of Nigeria into. The song is called Zombie by legendary Afrobeat musician Fela Kuti. Finally, in our exploration of the John Coltrane Black Music Archive, we have a track featuring the collection's namesake. Brom, tell us about this track, Just Friends, by the Cecil Taylor Quintet. What is fascinating is that Cecil Taylor was, when this album was recorded in 1958, he was on his way up as a real experimental musician. At the time, his music hadn't yet evolved the way it would later on. And at the same time, John Coltrane's music was on the way to an evolution to something entirely different from his hard bop environments. So Cecil Taylor and Coltrane came together. And I think what is most fascinating about hard driving jazz, which is this album, is that they inspired each other. And that was Just Friends by the Cecil Taylor Quintet featuring John Coltrane. A longer playlist of the tracks and more selections from the John Coltrane Memorial Black Music Archive can be found online at kpbs.org. I've been speaking with the collection's curator, Brom Dykstra. And Brom, thank you so much for joining us today. You're welcome.
KPBS On Demand is supported by Under the Sun Foundation, presenting the Candlewood Arts Festival in Borrego Springs, featuring temporary public art projects that engage community and place. March 23rd. More at candlewoodartsfestival.org.